will be in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah arose from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In 2014, the famous and beloved actor, Robin Williams, took his life. And the 63-year-old actor uh, was an admitted abuser of cocaine, which he called Peruvian marching powder and devil's dandruff. In 2006, he checked himself into a rehab center to get help with an addiction to alcohol. And it was after he checked himself in, 20 years he had been sober until that point that he had a relapse and he fell off the wagon. Shortly after that is when he had an interview with ABC's Diane Sawyer. And he said this about the addiction. He said, it waits. It lays in wait for the time when you think, it's fine now, I'm okay. Then the next thing you know, it's not okay. Then you realize, where am I? And oftentimes we limit the scope of addiction to drugs and alcohol. It's the most obvious. It's what seems to be front and center. But the reality is, is that all of sin is addictive. All of sin is addictive. It's persistent. It lies in wait. It doesn't go away. And that's what we've seen in this Genesis account coming off the flood. Noah gets off the boat, he makes a sacrifice to God, and immediately he plunges himself into sin. And his son Ham does the same. Sin is persistent. And it's because it's persistent that it leads to overwhelming levels of despair. So the question becomes, how do you overcome despair when your sin persists? And to answer that question, we're going to ask two questions. Why does sin persist? And why won't sin persist forever? So let's start with why does sin persist? There's, there's two reasons 
The first that we see is that sin is birthed out of good. It's birthed out of good. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. This connects Noah with Adam as God's representative to take care of the soil, take care of the ground. This is the cultural mandate part two. Noah is called to cultivate the earth, to take the, the raw resources that God gives him and to create something beautiful that's good for man and to the glory of God. Verse 20 also connects Noah to his father's prophecy, Lamech's prophecy, in chapter 5, verse 29, where Lamech, Noah's father, says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, speaking of Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now this sets the contrast between Adam and Noah because now Noah is called to cultivate the earth in its broken state post-Genesis 3, in the midst of the curse. And this means that the cultural mandate on Noah takes on the, uh, the command or the mandate to bring relief and to bring comfort from the pain and the brokenness of the world. And that's exactly what we see Noah do here in verse 20. The word began actually means something new, not a renewed activity. So we see Noah developing the science of growing grapes. He plants a vineyard. We see Noah developing the science of making wine. He is subduing the ground to bring relief and comfort, which wine does. The scriptures call it, the, it uniquely gladdens and cheers the heart. Psalm 104.15 says that. Wine to gladden the heart of man. Judges 9.13 speaks of wine that cheers men. And so we see Noah actually fulfilling his father's prophecy. We see Noah actually bringing comfort and bringing relief. But what we learn is that the human advance in technology in this sense, it's Noah developing the science of growing grapes, Noah developing the science of making wine, right? that human advance in technology is distorted by human depravity. It's distorted by sin. And so wine that was a gift from God that Noah and his family were to enjoy as they worshiped God became a God in and of itself. It became the ultimate thing, and it became that which brought harm rather than good. It becomes destructive. That's what we read in verse 21. Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The scriptures speak of the blessing of wine, but the scriptures also speak of the danger of wine. And so what we see here is sin being birthed out of that which is good. That an advance in culture, human cultural advancement of, of growing grapes and making wine because of human sin and depravity gets distorted. And so we see sin being birthed oftentimes out of human technology advancement, cultural advancement. Let me give you a few examples. The internet. The internet is good. In fact, 
The internet has enabled education to get into parts of our world that otherwise would never receive it. The internet has allowed theological education to be brought to parts of the world where Christian leaders and pastors and new believers can be trained and discipled and, and taught about the riches of God's grace. There's incredible good to the internet. And yet that same internet has burst a pornography epidemic. And so we see how sin is birthed out of something good. Or let me give you another example, social media. Right? Social media is, is good. Social media has allowed us to connect in ways that we haven't been in the past. I mean, even right now in this pandemic, how many churches are using Facebook Live to stream their services? The gospel is being proclaimed through the social media platform of Facebook and others. It's good. I had someone send me a, a graphic. Uh, this was probably a month ago, maybe several weeks back. And it was a, a picture of a pastor uh, years ago uh, saying that social media and Facebook was the work of the devil. And then it had a picture of this same pastor today in our season inviting everyone to watch his service on Facebook Live, right? Uh, social media is good, and yet that same social media has been the source of incredible cruelty, incredible malice, incredible hate. It's become the way to reinvent yourself every day. It's become the way to selfishly get people to like you. It's become a weapon of slander and gossip and cruelty. It's become the way to bash politicians and leaders and everyone else who you don't agree with. And probably the most destructive has been it has become a tool that has ruined the witness of followers of Christ. So again, we see that sin is birthed out of something good that human advance in technology is distorted by human depravity. But there's a second reason why sin persists, and that is that sin feeds on sin. That sin feeds on sin. We pick up in verse 22, after Noah gets drunk and he passes out and he lays exposed in his tent, it says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then in verse 23, we read that Shem and Japheth actually take a garment, probably means a blanket of some sort, back their way into the tent and they cover their father. And then we read in verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, what exactly did Ham do to his father? Because of the lack of detail in the text, there are a number of interpretations of what happened here. I believe what is most clear from the scripture of what happened is this. Noah gets drunk. He gets very drunk. Passes out in his tent, which for a patriarch, that would have been an incredible loss of decency. Lays exposed, lays naked, a loss of decency, loss of honor, embarrassment, shame. And what we learn is that Ham 
does two things. Two verbs are used to describe what Ham does, right? It says he saw and he told, right? Now, the word saw here means to look searchingly. It doesn't, uh, it's not an accidental look. What it, what it means is that Ham didn't just kind of walk in the tent and go, oh, and find his father naked. That, say, that, Ham, that, that Ham knew about it somehow, maybe knew his father got drunk, and, and searched out his father to mock him, to make fun of him in his shame, and then walks out of the tent and gets his brothers to get them to join in in mocking his father and shaming his father and making fun of his father, who had become a drunk and passed out. That that's what was going on here. For a man who had built an ark, a man who had made an altar, a man who had sacrificed to save his family, this is the pinnacle of dishonor. This is the pinnacle of the violation of the fifth commandment, to honor father and mother. And Ham dishonors his father. And you say, why, why would Ham do such a thing? Why would he mock his father who got drunk and passed out naked? Why would he mock him? Why would he make fun of him? It's the same reason that you're tempted to gossip and slander about someone who has failed. It's the same reason. The reason that you gossip, the reason that you slander, the reason that potentially you make fun of is because it feels good to put someone else down or mock someone else because it makes you feel better about yourself. It is pride. It is self-righteousness. It's the need to feel superior to someone, and the way you can do that is to mock, slander, gossip, to cut them down. Ham's sin feeds on Noah's sin. And what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6, 1-2, he writes this, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ham did not restore his father in a spirit of gentleness. Far from it. When Paul says, uh, if you find someone caught in sin, to move towards them and restore them gently, and he says, and when you do this, be careful, lest you too are tempted. What's the temptation he's speaking of there in Galatians 6? He's speaking of pride. He's speaking of moving into someone who is stuck in sin and shame and believing that you wouldn't and couldn't do something so shameful as that person. It's the pride of moving in and and. and feeling better about yourself because you're not as bad as them. That's the temptation that Paul talks about. Sin feeds on the sin and failure of others. And sin feeds on your own sin. Now let me give you a couple examples of this. Noah gets drunk, so drunk he passes out. So let's address drunkenness and let's take it a step further and address addiction. 
if you were to poll people who read this passage on a cursory level, and you were to ask them just on a cursory read, what's the sin? What's the kind of upfront sin in this passage? Well, Noah, he got drunk. Right? That's, that is what you would commonly hear. And yet what we see is that God comes down hard on Ham in his action and not on Noah. That God focuses, uh, even the curse is on Ham, not on Noah. Now, that doesn't mean that God condones Noah's drunkenness. No, that doesn't, that's not what I mean. But it does mean that God is raising the seriousness of the prideful treatment of those that are caught in sin and shame. So, as we speak about addiction, your sinful pride, and your righteous, your self-righteousness, if you're one who doesn't struggle with addiction, can feed off of someone who struggles with addiction. You say, well, what's that look like? You know someone that's addicted. You know someone that has an addiction, drug or alcohol, and so you, you move towards them, and, and you take the approach of, man, if you just, just stop, if you just be as disciplined as I am, you could kick this addiction. If you just read your Bible and pray, you could kick this addiction. And what you don't realize, and that kind of move towards someone, is that your addiction to pride and self-righteousness. Your addiction to need to feel superior to someone is no different than their addiction to drugs or alcohol. It's the same thing. In fact, it's really convicting when you understand that their failure and their misery and their despair becomes the drug that feeds your addiction to self and your addiction to feel superior to them. They may be numbing their pain with alcohol, but you're numbing your insecurity with their failure and their despair. Sin feeds on the sin and failure of others. That's why it persists. But it also feeds on your own sin. Let me give you an example of this. If, if your uh, primary sin struggle is in the area of approval, that you have this insatiable appetite to be accepted, you have this insatiable appetite uh, to be valued by others, as long as you're being affirmed and patted on the back, all is good. But what happens when you're rejected? Most oftentimes, you will tend to medicate that primary sin issue with a secondary issue. So in your rejection, you may start to drink to numb the pain of that rejection. So what you have here is sin feeding on sin. The sin of drinking too much is feeding on the sin of needing approval and of people-pleasing and of creating an idol out of that. The point is, is that sin feeds on sin. That's why it persists. So how do you overcome despair when your sin persists? You first have to understand why it continues, why it persists, and that's because it's birthed out of something good, and it feeds on sin. 
Second question. To overcome despair, you have to understand why sin won't persist forever. Why won't sin persist forever? Why will there be an end? Why is your despair overcome by understanding that it won't persist forever and why it won't? Well, to explore this, we're gonna look at the action of Shem and who he points to. So where we find ourselves is Ham mocks his father, makes fun of his father, exposes his father, further brings shame on his father, gets his brothers, Shem and Japheth, to try to join in. Hey, guys, join me in the mockery. They refuse to do it. In fact, instead, they cover their father. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They cover their father's shame. They cover his nakedness. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to honor a father. They find their father in shame, embarrassed, loss of dignity, loss of honor. And instead of doing what Ham did, which was to mock and expose and further shame him, they in love cover their father's shame. Rather than gaining self-righteous pleasure by mocking their father's failure and embarrassment, they seek their father's good. They seek to cover him. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers over a multitude of sins. I remember watching the ESPN documentary on Steve Bartman. Steve Bartman was that Chicago Cubs fan who uh, interrupted or, or deflected a foul ball that was about to be caught by the Chicago Cubs left fielder, Moises Alou. It was the National League Championship Series, game six against the Florida Marlins. The Cubs were, it was the eighth inning. They were up three nothing. There were like two outs. The game was about done. They were about to wrap it up. Foul ball down the left field line. It's coming down right at the edge of the stands. Moises Alou goes up to catch it. And Steve Bartman never realized his life would be changed forever by this move. But he sticks his hand out to catch it. It hits his hand. He misses it, deflects it. And instantly, this sea of fans turn on him. They begin throwing beer and food on him. They begin cussing him. And it, it wasn't long before people, i.e. security officers in the stadium, realized this man's life's in danger, especially if he has to walk out of the stadium on his own. So two officers, security officers, come down and they escort him out. And as they're bringing him up the steps, people are throwing beer at him. They're throwing food at him. They're cussing him. And the most riveting part of the documentary was hearing from this uh, security officer. And she described from the moment that they took him out of his seat to the moment that they dropped him off in his apartment in Chicago later that night, they described what happened. They stayed in the stadium for two hours after the game to let the crowd clear out. And when they finally decided 
to, to go to their car to drive this man back to his apartment, they changed his appearance. They took his hat off. They took his glasses off. They took his coat off to try to get him into the car and get him out so nobody would recognize him. It was really a riveting and beautiful picture of them covering this man's shame. He made a mistake. And he was embarrassed, and he's covered in shame, and they protected him, and they covered his shame. It's, it's a picture of the fans who did just the opposite, who mocked him, who cussed him, who slandered him, who were trying to hurt him in his shame. And these two security officers, and especially this one who spoke in the documentary, trying to protect and cover him. You know, the fans were a picture of what Ham did with his father. And these two security officers are a picture of what Shem and Japheth did with their father. Covering someone's sin and shame means you don't broadcast it on social media, especially when someone says something that gets you angry or gets you frustrated or makes you feel wrong. You don't demean, disrespect, dishonor someone by posting something on Facebook means that you don't tell a friend about the sin and shame of someone else in the name of trying to seek advice on what to do and how to respond. You follow Matthew 18. You go and speak to the person. You confront them. You forgive them. You cover their shame. Love covers over a multitude of sin. And yet, as amazing as Shem and Japheth's actions were towards their father, covering their father's shame. When Noah woke up in the morning, his shame wasn't gone. They covered his shame, but they didn't remove his shame. And you can cover someone's shame. You can do the honorable act of covering someone's shame, but that doesn't remove their shame. And that's why this story and this action of Shem points to someone much greater who actually answers the question, ultimately, why won't your sin and shame persist forever? That's what we realize and understand when we read verses 25 through 27. This is the curse and bless, blessing part of the story. We read in verse 25, cursed be Canaan, who was the son of Ham. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. What we see here is the curse of sin and the blessing of God growing up together. We see God choosing to bring redemption to his world through the line of Shem, through his family line. We see Ham's son, Canaan, and their descendants, the Canaanites, becoming bitter enemies of God's people, bitter enemies of Israel, and carrying on the same sin of Ham and of Canaan. And what we see here is this ongoing tension between the light of God's redemption that he is going to bring through the family line of Shem and the curse of darkness and sin. We see these rubbing up against each other. Noah's three sons carry the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That's Shem and Japheth. 
Noah's son Ham carries, the, or carries on the, the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And what we see is that God chooses the family line of Shem to ultimately fulfill Genesis 3.15 and crush the serpent and bring an end to sin and shame. And we read in Genesis 11 that Shem's genealogy and the family line eventually at the end of verse 11, or Genesis 11, produces Abraham. And Abraham is the one whose family line eventually births the Christ, the Messiah. Shem couldn't remove his father's shame, but his family line would give birth to the one who would remove shame, Jesus Christ. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was exposed. Jesus was shamed. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was slandered. Jesus was made to be a public spectacle. And we read in Hebrews 12 too, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That means to look down on to defeat, ultimately, the shame. And then we read the next verse that he rose to be at the right hand of God. Roman crucifixion, which is how Jesus died, was intended to bring the worst humiliation and the worst shame possible. Jesus was sinless. He was completely undeserving of such treatment, which begs the question, then why was he subject to show so much shame? It leaves one conclusion, that he must have been bearing the shame of someone else or of others. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was bearing the shame of you and me bearing the sin of you and me. Now, that doesn't mean that as Jesus takes away shame, that doesn't mean you'll never experience sin again, that you'll never experience shame again. What it does mean, though, is Jesus declaws sin and shame. He takes the power out of it. That it no longer has power over you. That it no longer has power to defeat you. I've shared this story before, but Johnny Erickson Tata, she quadriplegic as a teenager from an accident, and she shares the story of her wedding day. She went on to get married, and she talks about her wedding day as she was preparing to move to the center aisle to walk down the aisle, and her friends had to pick her up and put her in this wheelchair. And she said as she got put in the wheelchair, her dress adjusted and wasn't fitting right, didn't look right. And they, put, they gave her the flowers. She couldn't hold the flowers. They had to set it on her lap. And she said as she was moving her wheelchair to get to the center aisle, the, the tire ran over her dress and left a, 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 a skid mark of grease on her dress. And so that by the time she got near that center aisle, she felt so incredibly unlovely. And then she 
got around the corner of that center aisle, and she says she looked down the aisle and saw her husband, Ken, standing at the front, staring at her with eyes of love. And she says it was in that moment that she immediately forgot about her dirty dress. She forgot about how it wasn't fitting right. She forgot about this clanky mechanical wheelchair she was in, and she simply gazed into the eyes of love and felt the honor being poured out on her in that moment by this man. Jesus Christ bore your shame. He bore your sin. So that when you gaze into his eyes, when you gaze upon Christ, what you see are eyes filled with love. And you see eyes that bestow nothing but honor upon you. Your sin and your shame will not persist forever because the promise is that the bridegroom who you gaze upon now with the eyes of faith one day is gonna come back and you will see him face to face. And when he comes back, all of your sin and your shame and your brokenness will be taken away for good. But until that time, when you look at him, he bestows honor on you and he bestows love on you and takes away your shame. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our weariness. We confess our despair over the persistence of our sin. It just won't go away. It rears its ugly head. It comes back. It lies in wait. Sin is an addiction. And yet, Father, we cling to the hope that you give us in your word that it won't persist forever. That Jesus, you didn't just come to cover our shame. You came and you took it away from us. You were stripped naked, you were mocked, you were made a public spectacle in our place. But you didn't stay in the grave. You didn't stay in that place of shame. You rose to the right hand of the Father. And Father, thank you for sending your Son to die and raise that we can gaze into the eyes of your Son and receive honor and receive love and watch the power of our shame and the power of our sin be silenced. As we continue to sing, would you fill our hearts with joy over such a glorious truth? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.